Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. We live in a world that tends to always be built around reactions. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's really all that relevant to explain why that is, but whether it's in the realms of uh, sports or entertainment or politics, whatever it might be, uh, the fact that we have the constant stream of social media, we have the 24-hour news cycle, it means that any time there is anything that happens, what happens right along with that is this compulsion we feel to react, regardless of how qualified we may or may not be to weigh in on the matter. Every little thing that happens has to be proclaimed as either the greatest or the worst thing that has ever happened. It doesn't matter if our reaction is based in reality or not. We just have to get our reaction out there. We have to have people know what our thoughts are. At least that's the message fed to us by our culture. That your team loses one game. I'm sure this will happen the first time the Vikings lose this fall. If, if that happens, I guess I should say. First... First loss happens, every player, coach, executive on the team, everyone needs to be fired immediately because they don't know what they're doing. A new movie comes out, it is either the greatest or the worst thing that has ever been on a screen, and there's no middle ground in between. The politician we voted for wins their election, and all the world's problems are going to be solved by the end of the week. When we live in that way, when we live in this posture that our world always tells us we need to live in, always on edge, always reacting to whatever has happened, it leads to a well-being that is always dependent upon what has just happened. And the result from that, in my own experience, in my own observations of our world, is that it always ends with a life that is anxious and frantic. A reactive life is rarely a life that leads to flourishing. And yet Jesus offers us a better way. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13 this morning. If you have a Bible and want to open it up there or want to take one from the chair in front of you, you're welcome to do that. The words will be on the screen here in a few moments. But I say what I've just said because the passage of Scripture we're going to be walking through this morning begins with Jesus being approached and asked to give a reaction. Some people come to him with some news that has happened, and they want Jesus' opinion on it, almost like a, like a politician being approached by a reporter wanting to get a, a quick quote on the news from the day. And we might think that life in the ancient world, a life lived before social media and cable news and electricity and running water, was a life that was always slow and quiet and peaceful, and there were certainly elements of that, but at the same time, You can make the case pretty easily that the world Jesus lived as a part of was far more chaotic than our own. Uh, When Jesus arrives on the scene, the Jewish people are living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And they are longing for someone to come and free them from Roman occupation. Because the, the region... Uh, that Jesus lives in these regions of Judea and Galilee. They are out on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. What that means is that Rome has a special interest in protecting their borders. So any time that there is the hint of, of rebellion, any hint of unrest, it is in the best interest of Rome to swoop in and squash that rebellion as quickly and as violently as possible 
to send a message to the people they are ruling over and to protect their territory. So there's this tension in the world, and Jesus walks on the scene and, for all intents and purposes, makes it worse. Anyone walking around this part of the world at this time in history making claims like they are the Son of God who has come to bring a kingdom is going to cause the ears of Rome to perk up pretty quickly. And as Jesus is making claims like this and is making his way closer and closer to Jerusalem, the capital of the land of Israel, the place where God's temple dwells, this tension is continuing to build. Jesus is walking into a room full of dynamite and he's holding a lit match. And in the midst of that tension, these people come to Jesus and they want him to react, to give his thoughts on the news of the day. And what I find so interesting about this passage is that Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, does not react directly. Uh, he gives a brief answer and then he tells a story. And I think the way Jesus approaches this tells us something pretty significant about how we should react to the events in our world, in a world that is so reactive and so uh, uh, flying by the seat of our pants, it seems like just jumping from one new story to the next. I think the way Jesus handles this situation here shows us something significant. The theologian Karl Barth once said that uh, as Christians, we should live, we should read um, the events of our world, he says we should sit down and we should take our Bible in one hand, we should take the newspaper in the other. If he was alive today, he might say take our social media feed in the other. And that we should read both. But that we should read our newspaper, we should read the news of the day through the lens of our Bible. Now the point being made there is not that every story in the newspaper has one specific verse of the Bible that perfectly explains it, and so as soon as you come across something in the newspaper, you got to start flipping through the pages of your Bible to make sense of it. The point being made there is that the story of Scripture, which reveals who God is and how he has made himself known in Jesus, is to be the glasses we put on to look through the world around us, as opposed to looking at the world around us through the lens of whatever has happened the last time our phone buzzed. A life lived by reactions is a life that is always looking outward, a life that is always dependent upon the news of the day to try to find significance and meaning and well-being. And Jesus instead, in this passage, will call us to a life that begins with repentance. To live a life that begins by looking inward. To be transformed by God so that then we can look outward and bring restoration to our world. Our passage comes to us in two parts, and so I want to break it down like that in that way this morning. The first, passage, the first part of the passage begins with this situation of brokenness, and then in the second part, Jesus tells a story of repentance. So let's read the first part, Luke 13, verses 1 to 5. It says, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus continues, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. 
But unless you repent, you too will all perish. This event Jesus is told about in this passage is one that we actually don't know anything about outside of uh, these verses in Scripture in in world history. And that doesn't mean that the story's made up or anything like that. There are plenty of things in history we only have one source for uh, when we look back. But it does mean that because that's the case, we have to try to connect some dots to figure out what is going on that causes these people to come to Jesus and ask for his opinion. Uh, This is an event that was done by uh, by Pilate. And, and if we're readers of the New Testament, when we hear that name, Pilate, we tend to go right away to the Easter story because he's a character in that story, and that's certainly where he shows up uh, the, most, the, the most times in our New Testament. But we also know from history more broadly and from passages like this that there's much more to Pilate than just uh, that Good Friday. Pilate was the governor over this part of the world during this time. He was installed there by the Roman Empire, and his entire task was to keep the peace. And yet what we know throughout history is that Pilate was not the greatest at his job. And as we read history, there tends to be this cycle where there would be some sort of unrest, there would be some sort of hint that maybe the Jewish people were going to rebel or something like that, and so Pilate would swoop in and would quickly deal with it and would, and would uh, uh, wipe out the thread, whatever it might be, and that would create tension between Pilate, between the Romans, and the Jewish people Pilate was supposed to be ruling over. And so there would be tension, awkward situation, threats of more violence, more unrest, things like that. Pilate would have to do whatever it took to smooth that unrest over, and then this, this unease would kind of set in, this, this uh, tense peace, so to speak, and the cycle would start over again. And this event appears to be one lap around that cycle that was the case throughout Pilate's rule. There were some Jewish people from the region of Galilee, of course, Galilee is the region where Jesus and so many of his first disciples are from. And they were in the temple in Jerusalem. And we don't know, we don't get all the details about what happened. Maybe they actually were uh, threatening violence. Maybe they were conspiring to start a rebellion against the Roman Empire. Maybe just something looked bad. Maybe this is just an act of senseless violence. We don't know. But for whatever reason, these Galileans are in the temple And in the midst of everything going on, uh, they are put to death by Roman soldiers. And the result of that act is that the blood spilled of these Galileans gets intermingled with the blood of the sacrifices in the temple on that day. And an event like this would have been absolutely repulsive for the Jewish people. I mean, murder has taken place in the temple. Blood has been spilled. Impurity has cropped up in the place that was supposed to be completely set apart so that God's presence could dwell among His people. This is a tragedy. And as tragedies tend to do, this raises questions. Questions like, why would God allow something like this to happen? Questions like, what is going to be done about this? Who is going to step up to avenge this blood? And it seems that Questions like this always tend to pop up when tragedy strikes, even in our world today. And I think at least part of the reason why that is the case is because tragedy is disruptive. We like order. We like knowing what's going on and and being able to understand why things happen in our world the way that they do. And when tragedy strikes, it can feel so random 
And we want answers to know why this has happened, if nothing else, to try to find some comfort for ourselves. It's not hard to imagine these questions being asked. Something like this has taken place. I mean, what must be going on so that God would allow something like this to happen within the temple? This isn't the only place in Jesus' ministry when he is confronted with an event like this and is asked if bad things have happened because there's a system out there where bad things happen to bad people. I mean, are things as simple as uh, if you're a bad person, God punishes you, and if you're a good person, God rewards you? I mean, did these people from Galilee, did they do something to deserve this? Was God so angry at something that they did that he waited till they were in the temple and then made this happen to them? I mean, are things that simple? And if so, what did they do? Because if they did something so bad that God got back at them this way, then I want to make sure I never do whatever it was that they did. How do we explain this? How does the world work? Is there a system? Because tragedy can feel random, and if it is random, that means that one day the wheel might spin and it might land on me. So Jesus, what is going on? Is there a secret you can let us in on? Is there an explanation you can offer? Is there assurance that something like this will never happen to me? And if it does, you will do something about it. And Jesus gives a brief response to their concern, but then goes in a different direction. Because if things really are so simple that bad things happen to bad people and anyone that has a bad thing happen to them must be a bad person, the way I can know that I'm a good person is that life is going well for me. And Jesus says that it's not that simple. In fact, he extends the conversation and brings up another event there in his response, another tragedy from the news headlines of the day. A tower had fallen and killed 18 people. And Jesus points to both of these situations, two tragedies from his day, and says, first and foremost, these events did not happen because God was angry and got back at the people who suffered. It was not a situation where they got what they had coming from them. They were broken situations because we live in a broken world that has been corrupted by sin, and God's good creation does not function as it was fully intended to as a result of that. Sometimes bad things happen even in our world today. Sometimes political leaders are more concerned with protecting their own power than leading the people they have been called to lead, and so they commit atrocities to that end. Sometimes there are accidents, either due to poor construction and oversight, and disasters can occur. And our response when those things happen should not be speculation as happens here, reactions of wondering, well, I wonder why this happened. I wonder what they did to deserve it. I wonder what we could do to fix this problem. Does this person have some sort of secret sin that they need to deal with in the midst of their grief? Jesus says that the proper response, the proper reaction, is actually one of mourning, of grieving the fact that we live in a world where things like this happen. Instead of speculating outwardly, Jesus calls us to reflect inwardly. And that's where things begin to shift. Because, I mean, these people came to Jesus asking for an abstract explanation. He tells them what, that they need to respond. They ask Jesus for a blueprint to explain why bad things happen to good people. Jesus gives them an invitation hymn. 
instead of giving a snappy soundbite where Jesus emphasizes that, you know, this is a bad thing and I hate that, but once I am made king, nothing like this will ever happen again, Jesus says, actually, you need to repent. Because that's the only way to ensure that even if you were to go through something like this, it would not mean your complete destruction. And that might seem like dodging the question, but actually Jesus is taking the conversation in a much more important direction. Because of what he has just lined out is true, that there's no system where bad things only happen to people who deserve them. That means we can't game the system and save ourselves from tragedy. There's no foolproof way to make sure that you'll never get cancer or be in a car accident or lose your job or have to stand at the graveside of someone you love. Anyone who has lived in this world for very long knows it is not a matter of if tragedy will strike, but when. We can't save ourselves from any and all hardship for all time. But we can save ourselves from something far worse. Any tragedy we might experience in this life is nothing compared to the tragedy of eternal separation from the presence of God. And repentance is the first step towards ensuring that no matter what we go through, we are able to endure through it and ultimately be restored and resurrected. And so, when faced with tragedy, Jesus does not call us to react outwardly, at least at first. He calls us to pause, to reflect, to consider whether or not we need to repent. When we read news headlines, when we scroll social media, we are not called to comment with our thoughts immediately about who is at fault. We're called to consider our own imperfections, to ask God to point out our own brokenness, so that we might be healed and delivered from something far worse than whatever is leading the news on that day. To drive that point home, Jesus tells this story in verses 6 to 9 to show the urgent need for repentance. The text says, Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. A fig tree growing in a vineyard would have been something common enough in Jesus' day. And there's a chance there's supposed to be some deeper significance there. Some scholars will point that out, and, and that's fair. If you read through the Old Testament, you will find pretty regularly that, that, that a vineyard is an image that gets used pretty consistently to describe God's people. And we'll also find when we read through the Old Testament that this idea of a, the, the imagery of a fig tree gets used quite a bit to describe abundance and prosperity and things like that. And so maybe there's some extra significance to the fact that we have a fig tree growing in a vineyard. I don't want to speculate on that. I think the main point, if nothing else, is that whatever is going on with this fig tree that's not growing, it's not the fault of the soil. Because you can look around and see vines and grapes growing all around it, and yet in the midst of all of that, we have a fig tree that will not bear fruit. And the owner of this vineyard has come to this tree for three years in a row now, hoping to enjoy a fig and has not found one. So he's done. He gives up. He says, cut it down, plant something else. But for whatever reason, the caretaker of this vineyard thinks it deserves just one last chance. 
And he vows to pull out all the stops in this next year. He says, give it one more year. I'll do everything I can. I'll, I'll dig around it. I'll put fertilizer on it. In the original language, it says to put man, that he'll put manure around it to make sure that it will grow into all that it could be. And he says, if, if that doesn't work, if we get to a year from now and there's still no fruit, then fine, we'll cut it down and move on. And then the story ends, which I find odd. If you have a Bible open in front of you right now, you can see that the story Luke is telling just moves on. We get no explanation, no resolution. So if we're going to make sense of this story from Jesus, we have to read it in light of what he's saying before he tells this story. Jesus is speaking to people who are wanting an outward reaction from him. And his response is that they should repent. And then he tells this story. So in light of what Jesus has already said, that must mean that whatever we do with this story, we at least have to do something about it. If nothing else, this story at least means that Jesus is talking to us. That he's not issuing some kind of vague call for feeling bad, but he is looking at us directly and calling us to repent. That we are the tree that needs to be fruitful, and if not, we'll be cut down. And that might sound over the top, and I understand that, and yet at the same time, I can't get away from the words of Jesus. Because Jesus has come to reveal the way to life with God, and there is no other option. There is no later installment of the story coming. The story culminates in Jesus. And in saying that, Jesus is not making the point in this parable that, you know, God is the owner of the vineyard and he's the one working the vineyard. And Jesus is saying, you know, I'm standing between you and the owner of the vineyard for as long as I can, but one day he's going to lose it and I'm not going to be able to stand in his way. So you better repent before he flies off the handle. That's not the point he's making at all. He's saying that this one more year that we, is the time we are living in. And it is the time that gets used in other places in the New Testament, referred to as the last days. And often when we hear that language of the last days, we think of you know, time running out, that Jesus is going to come back any second, and that that's what the New Testament is saying when it uses that language. But that's not the point that the authors of the New Testament make with that term. The point they're making with that is that we are living in between the first and second coming of Jesus. We are in the last days in the sense that the next step of the story is the return of Jesus. The next chapter is the end of the story, when Jesus will return and all people will face him, when the owner of the vineyard will arrive and will want to know if the fig tree has grown fruit. And that's the next step of the story. And when that happens, the owner of the vineyard will not show up wondering if the fig tree has opinions on everything else that has happened in the vineyard. He will want to know if there has been fruit. And for that reason, Jesus calls us to repent to acknowledge who he is, to experience inward transformation so that we might offer outward restoration. And as we hear that call from Jesus, it is important we understand the call he is actually making instead of just thinking of that word repentance and how our world so often misunderstands it. As Jesus calls us to repent, he's not offering us a fire insurance policy. He's not asking us to say a prayer one time and then continue on our way. He's 
And at the same time, he's not calling us to make a regular habit of feeling bad, but not really changing anything about our life. He's inviting us into the life we were created to live. A tree is fruitful when it is just doing the thing it was created to do. And Jesus calls us to repent from a life that eventually leads to death so that we can experience the life God desires for us. And so repentance means renouncing any elements of a life that ends in eternal separation from the one who loves us and created us for a relationship with him so that we can step into a life that culminates in perfection in eternity. And that is a life that begins right here and right now. And responding in that way might not answer all of our questions. My guess is this story from Jesus did not answer all the questions that the crowd coming to him that day had. And yet at the same time, it offers us something far better and far longer lasting. We don't need an answer key to all the problems of life as badly as we need an answer to what happens at the end of the story. I mean, if we had... Uh, an explanation in the face of tragedy if we knew fully why it happened and how it was going to work out but we did not know what happened at the end of the story we would be missing it no matter what we go through the thing we need more than anything else is an unbroken relationship with jesus and the first step towards that is our repentance We don't need reactions. We don't need analysis. We don't need anything else. We need the blood of Jesus that has been poured out for us so that we might be saved from death and might have eternal life with our God. And experiencing that begins with our repentance, with with inward transformation. And that leads to outward restoration for us and for our world. And it ends in our resurrection. Jesus does not tell us how this parable ends. I mean, we assume, at least I assume as I read it, that the owner of the vineyard listens to his employee, that he gives this tree another year to be fruitful. But we're not told that for sure. We don't know what happens to the tree. And I think maybe that at least part of the reason why we're not given that explanation is because as Jesus is telling this story, the end of the parable hasn't been written yet. And the end of the parable has not been written for each and every one of us, even as I speak right now. I don't know this for sure. I'm using a little bit of imagination, but if you can imagine someone in the crowd asking Jesus later, you know, what, what happened to the tree? Did the owner of the vineyard let it grow for another year? Did, did he just cut it down right there on the spot? What happened to the tree? Was it fruitful or not? I think Jesus might respond, well, that's kind of up to you. The story is not abstract. It is asking us if we have repented if we have come before God and acknowledged who he is and experienced inward transformation that leads to outward restoration. The story is asking us if we desire to root things out of our lives that end in death so that we can step into the life that Jesus offers us. And stepping into that life begins, first and foremost, by looking at ourselves. We can't deal with the questions and problems of the world before we deal with our own hearts in light of who God is. 
The real problems of our world are not solved with good theories and planning and policies and think pieces. They are solved by dealing with the problems we find first and foremost in ourselves. Because Jesus has come to transform the world, and that transformation begins by transforming us. And as we experience that transformation, we are then equipped to bring restoration to the world. And as I say that, I am not trying to make a sales pitch that says the moment we repent, all our problems magically go away. I am saying that repentance is the act of dealing with the problem of sin in ourselves before we do anything else. And at the end of the day, sin is the source of all of the other problems we might witness in our world. And repentance deals with the core of the problem so that we can then be restored and step into the world offering the restoration to the rest of the world that comes through life with Jesus. And that sort of life will sustain us even in the face of tragedy. I've had the privilege of standing on this very stage for the funerals of people who I am not ashamed to say are some of the true saints of the faith. People who walked faithfully with Jesus through all the ups and downs of life to the very end of their life, and as sad as those days are, they are absolutely sad. At least for me, they are at the same time a joy. Because they are an opportunity to stand up here and proclaim the hope of the gospel. To celebrate that the person whose life we are remembering on that day has experienced the culmination of their hope. And remind ourselves, remind one another that the, that the hope of the gospel is the thing that sustains us at all times, even on days that are difficult. And that is what Jesus has come to offer each and every one of us. And it starts with repentance, of acknowledging who God is and submitting to him. And so we respond to this passage with repentance. Now, in saying that, I want to be careful because I know I am speaking to a group of people in all different walks of life, and so repentance looks different for different people. Maybe there are some of us who have never followed Jesus at all, and we need to repent before Him to acknowledge that we have been living as if we are our own authority, and we recognize that that is not the case, and we need to submit to God as the one who is creator, ruler, sustainer of all things, and walk in life with Him. Maybe some of us have sin that needs to be dealt with. We have been walking with Jesus uh, at, at times in our lives, but things keep getting in the way. We find that death keeps cropping up in this uh, walk that is supposed to lead to life. And so we need to repent, to confess sin to God or to someone we trust and who loves us and who will walk with us. And in saying that, I'm not suggesting that each and every one of us has some deep, dark secret we need to confess right now, and then all the problems of the world will magically go away. But I am acknowledging that God is God, and we are not. And I know how easy it is, at least in my own life, to forget that arrangement. And so we need to repent regularly so that we might experience the grace of God. Repentance is not a one-time thing we do once and move on. But at the same time, we don't want to swing too far in the other direction and say repentance is just this guilt trip that no matter how long you walk with Jesus, there should always be at least one thing you feel bad about. That's not my point either. Because the story doesn't end in repentance. 
Repentance is necessary for all of us, not for the sake of guilt and shame, but for the sake of reminding ourselves of how gracious our God is, so that we might then step into the life that he has offered us instead of continuing down the path that leads to death. And so we start with repentance. We're transformed inwardly, which leads to restoration outwardly. And then we walk in the life that leads to resurrection, no matter what the path might look like in the meantime. If you're dealing with pain, with tragedy this morning, I am not here trying to exploit what you're going through. I'm trying to offer you the real, deeper solution that meets us in whatever we are going through so that we might have life with our God. And as we come before Him in repentance, acknowledging who He is, we find transformation in the present that leads to restoration in the future. Restoration from death to life, from sinner to saint, from hurting to healed. And that restoration might come fully in this life. It might not come fully until the next one. But through it all, our God is with us and is leading us into life with Him. And so we repent. And so that we might at least take one step to try to pursue that together, we're going to end today uh, by praying the last two verses of Psalm 139 together. If you would join me as we do that, the words will be on the screen. We're gonna, as we ask God to transform us so that we might be restored and then walk in the way that leads to resurrection. So would you pray with me? Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, hear our prayer. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 